What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of My School Muggles. Uh, today, uh, I guess I'm running the, the show at the beginning. Uh, we got Edgar. You already know every time. Uh, and then we have a special guest today. Um, Josh. Josh. What was <laughs> yeah. your last name? I didn't I catch that. Joshua McDermott. McDermott. And um, I mean, uh, this episode was brought to you by Dollar Shave Club. Uh, it's a, it's a it's a subscription based box that I always use. Uh, yeah. They actually just sent me some like facial stuff, which actually made my skin super soft. And I think <laughs> I'm hooked on that product now. Uh, but they have all sorts of stuff. They have like razors. They have uh, skincare, hair care. You name it, they have it all. And what's cool about it is that they have a it's a box, so you can add and remove stuff as as you go. And it's not that expensive. And they'll just ship it to you. Sometimes I forget to order razors, and before I know it, some more razors show up. Or yeah. I don't. Before I had this, uh, I would forget to buy razors. Like when you go buy groceries and stuff like that, I'd always forget razors. But with this, they would always send it to me. And I had it way before even the sponsorship. So, you know, check them out. The link's going to be in the description. And I just found out that the Ch- Junkie Chicanos are almost going to release it. We, uh, there's 10,000 of them. Uh, NFTs, you know, I don't know if you've heard of NFTs, mm-hmm. but that's yeah. uh, it's a new and upcoming thing. Uh, those are going to start minting soon. So, you know, go follow them on Instagram. The, that link is also going to be in the description. It's going to be on the Solana platform. So if you don't have Solana, I suggest you go buy some. <laughs> start buying Solana right now. And sign up for your crypto wallet and all those things. Uh, it's really easy. We're going to do a video for you guys so you guys can you know, get a gist of it. Kind of walk through. So, and then also PNW gear, we can't forget about them. Uh, they have all sorts of like little EDC gear, uh, you know, lanyard beads, you name it, lighters. They have uh, all sorts of stuff. Go and check them out. Their link is also going to be in the description. Uh, I like the little toothpick. I use that thing all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're going to mess around with it all day. Yeah. You never know when you need a tooth, a metal toothpick. So anyways, we have Josh today. Uh, Rod told me a little bit about you and I was like, hey, like we should bring him on the podcast, uh, get to know you and like what inspired you to do some of the things that you do. Uh, well, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, I mean, I want people to get to know you. Where are you originally from? I grew up in Rigby, Rigby, Idaho. Rigby, Idaho? Yeah. Until about what age? Uh, I lived in Rigby my whole life. I was born in Idaho Falls, uh, I have a twin sister. I was born there with my twin sister, and uh, we were raised in Rigby until I was 18. At 18, I left for Utah, went okay. to college down there. Yeah. Okay, and so, I mean, how old are you now? 31. 31? Oh, so yeah. we're about the same age. I'm, I'm 33, 31. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you grew up here. Was it growing up, like middle school? I mean, what would you say, what kind of kid you were? Um. Were you shy? Were you? Like- I was. I was maybe kind of shy, but a uh, little bit of an outsider. Maybe um, I was really into music growing up. Um, those are weird times. Uh, You're still trying to figure yourself out during those <laughs> yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. It's an awkward, <laughs> awkward time in middle school, especially in high school. I feel like I had myself figured out more. In high school, I wasn't really into music, so I would like play music around Idol Falls uh, cafes around Idol Falls. I don't know if you remember. Dancing Dogs Cafe. Did you ever go down to that cafe right off Hit Road? Right off the Hit Exit? Mm-mm. Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell. Uh, we used to play music down at that cafe. I used to play at the Villa. Um, so music was really kind of my thing growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, he also sent me a, a link to an EP of yours. Yeah, I made that with Ulysses. Um, but to be honest, like once I got to college, I, my my focus sort of, sort of shifted from music and mm-hmm. more towards writing. Um, so I studied writing in college uh, as an undergraduate. And then uh, from there, I started shifting more towards studying um, politics and sociology. So now I'm a sociologist. I just received my Ph.D. in sociology from uh, the University of Pittsburgh. So, um, yes, yeah, I, I still try to do music sometimes, but I would say my main focus has shifted towards um, poetry and uh, academic and activist type writing. So I do have a book of poetry that came out in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I got to college, like, I don't know, the music sort of shifted to, I, I mostly did the music for the words anyways. I'm really into like lyrics and, and poetry. So, um, just recently we started making music again, me and Ulysses, cause you know, we lived together in Pittsburgh. Um, but yeah, so I still do music sometimes, but it's not really been my main focus. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of, uh, sorry to kind of jump in, but, um, the poetry part is kind of interesting to me because like you said, like very lyricist on like the music, which, mm-hmm. um, there was like a time that music at least was very like lyrical. And I think it's actually coming back, coming to back that. instead of like the, the beat and kind of going the rhythm, but going to the poetry part, um, what kind of catches your eye at that? Like, 
what it makes you like, oh, I, I like to write poetry, which is different, isn't it? A lot from like writing anything else. Yeah, it's um, and there's lots of bad poetry. It's kind yeah. of funny because I like I like poetry and I like writing poetry, but there's also <laughs> lots of bad poetry in the mm, world. Yeah. Um, uh, I like really what you would call confessional type poetry that's really like personal and um, that expresses like interesting ideas. So it's usually saying something interesting. Um, and actually, I used to run a poetry website with my sister. We ran it for a couple of years. It's kind of defunct now, but. Uh, I kind of blended my political interests with my interest in poetry doing that website. So we were running a working, we called it a working class poetry website because lots of times I feel poetry has become sort of like stuffy and sort of like the, the realm of like just uh, academia, Mm -hmm. you know? So we were trying to run this website that was publishing poetry more from like average people because uh, poetry used to be really popular amongst like the general population and that's not really the case anymore. You know, it's sort of like, uh, like I said, it's mostly like an academic thing these days. So we were trying to sort of challenge that and kind of give like more political type poetry. So I like writing that as well that focuses on especially issues of like class and, and inequality and poverty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't want to be like, uh, like I, I don't want to say like I don't understand the subject, but I feel like more of my age, like you think of poetry and like, oh, rhyming words, you know, like, yeah, just like yeah. you said, like what the, whatever they teach in school. Yeah. But I know it's not that. And how could you explain that it's not just like basic words like yeah. cat and hat or whatever you're <laughs> rhyming? Um, yeah, the worst thing you can do in poetry is start having end rhymes that are like rhymes. really forced. Okay. Yeah, that's like that's like not good poetry. Mm-hmm. Um and I think we get a really poor poetry education in public school. At least, in, at least I did in Rigby, Idaho. From yeah. Cat in the Hat. Same, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what really got me into poetry, if you or your listeners are familiar with them, is I got really into the beat poets from the 1940s and 50s. Um, uh, poets like Jack Kerouac. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jack Kerouac. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or Allen Ginsberg. Have you ever heard of Allen Ginsberg? No, I'm telling you. Like my, like I, I always found it interesting on the poetry side, and I feel like a lot of people, like at least in my age, because my generation, I, I think it's just kind of like a lost. Yeah. Just you only touch it in school, and that's it. Yeah, it's like, like a lost art for yeah. sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. and but you see, like, um, back in the day, that like you said, it was a thing. Like yeah, and it's, like you you go to the cafes, and sometimes yeah. they're sitting up there, uh, you know, reciting. I mean, saying poetry. Yeah. yeah. But and that's what I got really into in college and down in Logan, Utah, going to Utah State University. We we developed this sort of cool poetry subculture there, and we were making um, zines. I don't know if you're familiar with zines. Mm-mm. Zines are like uh, handmade magazines, basically. Um, it's really like DIY art. It's usually, there's like hand draw, handmade drawings as well. So uh, you might call it like guerrilla poetry. Oh, okay. Um, so we were making zines and we were having house parties and house party poetry readings where there'd be a lot of drugs and alcohol. They would get pretty wild. But it, was, it would be this kind of weird, like it was almost uh, anachronistic and like that's not common in these, this day and age. But we had a lot of fun with it, me and my friends down there. And we had this pretty cool community of poets, but uh, kind of like the beat poets from the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, it's very sort of like counterculture stuff, like yeah. um, talking about drugs alcohol sex uh talking about like you know kind of going against the man so it's sort of like very very much a subculture like a countercultural uh phenomenon and it also has its roots that type of poetry and like the the hippie movement of the 1960s i was gonna say um you know it, it might be kind of like a little dumb but it reminds me like the part of forrest gump when they when his uh jenny goes into that like hippies age that yeah. she went against like to rebel and it kind of reminds me of like that era like correct me if i'm not wrong yeah. but it's kind of the same concept she's kind of rebel against the concept of what they were trying to do at the time but i yeah. think i think it's pretty cool because I, I kind of related to like rap like yeah and there's like old school rap but then it reminds me of like that um eight mile when eminem is battling but they're not just blabbing out like things that rhyme they're actually saying things to them and i think it's pretty cool did did you ever have any like backlash in school like people were like, "Oh, dude, that's so weird." Like, um, so in high school, I wasn't so in. I was obsessed with Jack Kerouac. He he wrote this really famous book called On the Road, and uh, it's it's prose, but it's it's basically like a mix between prose and poetry, and it's just about him hitchhiking across the United States with his friends and having a good time. Um, and that book inspired me a lot, uh, especially growing up in a very conservative environment in Rigby, Idaho. I wanted something. I wanted life to be more exciting. So. 
I'm sure my some of my peers thought I was kind of strange that I was into that stuff, but mm-hmm. um, I didn't really care that much, you know. And I had other friends who probably thought it was cool. So, um, and I had teachers who like uh, supported me in that. And I think I first heard about Jack Kerouac because my oldest brother gave me uh, gave me a copy of On the Road. Yeah, um, I would highly recommend reading On the Road. It's a crazy. I'm actually crazy gonna. Time. I'm interested in. It. I'm gonna add it. I wonder if it's on Audible. <laughs> I do a lot of audiobooks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you touched on it a little bit. You said uh, you mentioned you guys would get together and like have drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Do you think you get different type of poetry when you're sober <laughs> and when you're yeah. like on some sort of drugs? Because I'll give you an example. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's really hard to explain this. Uh, what happened to me? So. Uh, buddies of mine, they told me to take a grab hit, you know, I don't know if people are familiar with those, but they're really intense, like hit and, uh, of weed. And it put me in a whole different dimension. Like I remember, I can't really explain what I, like all the stuff I saw, I saw like my hands melting and all sorts of stuff. Bro, are you sure that was <laughs> no, weed? It was, it was, uh, uh, the person, cause I even had a, like, I was like, Hey, like, I'm not mad, but like, was there anything else in there? He's like, no, nah, man. He's like, those graph hits are intense. Uh, so that's why I was wondering, like, have you gotten inspired by, like, what you saw under, like, the influence of some sort of, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to give the impression that I'm, like, this big, like, <laughs> uh, what do they call it? Psychonaut or whatever. Like, but I do think that stuff is interesting. It can give you interesting perspectives. And uh, we were mostly, yeah, doing psychedelics. Um, and if you read like the beat poets or, you know, they often would use, they, they had this, uh, is it that one? Yeah. Okay. They had this, uh, idea called stream of consciousness writing. And lots of times that was aided by, by psychedelic drug use, um, where you sort of write whatever comes up in your head. So Mm -hmm. that book on the road is famous because Jack Kerouac wrote it on a typewriter, um, in one continuous scroll. So he taped together all his pieces of paper and he wrote it over like a three day period where he was like on drugs and like going crazy. And they said he would like sweat. He would sweat so much through his shirts that he also had a clothesline of shirts. He would change as he sat there typing. So it's kind of like, can be kind of like frenetic and kind of crazy. Um, but I've done some, yeah, it definitely influences your writing and it can make, give you really interesting writing. I, I've written some like, uh, with weed or with mushrooms, but I also write sober as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not like I I lean on that, but I couldn't say, I couldn't say for my friends how they write. Maybe they are always stoned when they write, but, (laughs) uh, it is, it does, you know, psychedelics I think can be mind expanding and they can give you, uh, unique insights and unique ways of saying things. So I think there's always been sort of a connection between, especially like counterculture poetry and psychedelic use for sure. So you kind of, you kind of mentioned earlier that the type of poetry and kind of what influences it. Do you ever struggle to find um, things to write about or is it kind of like as things evolve and things happen and like the timeline and if it might be in politics or whatever is going on in your life, is it easier for you to express yourself or do you sometimes just stump yourself and you're like, the hell do I do now? Take some shrooms. Yeah. Yeah. That's the option. Um, and I haven't been writing as much like this past year. I think it's because I've been really focused more on doing um, research and more uh, political and academic writing. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of miss it a little bit. But, yeah, sometimes I I, I don't feel really, real inspired. And um, it's I always wanted my poetry to come out of life experiences rather than sort of living vicariously through my poetry, which I think happens a lot. Like, yeah. it, it's the same with the rap music, you know. Uh, and lots of the poetry today and lots of my poetry too is inspired by rap music. And there's a big overlap between those two communities, obviously, because they're all about, uh, words and the sound of words and the flow of words. So, um, I lost my train of thought. Dude, I don't know if you guys ever like remember logic. He had like a little, like a couple year run and then he kind of tanked, but like his lyrical flow was kind of like insane. And the way they like you told story, do you ever hear him? Logic, uh, he was uh, half white, half black, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And just dropped two albums, and then he disappeared. And then he, he said he was going to retire, but then he he ended he up coming did back. Divorced, and then yeah, he didn't have the same. But I remember him. He had a like crazy lyrical flow, which is insane. And then the way he could freestyle off the top, I there's good freestylers out there, but like the way that he could like just and he would multitask. I don't know if you ever saw the one with the Shade Forty Five that he would do like the Rubik's Cube. 
he'd sell the Rubik's cube while he's freestyling. Mm-hmm. Like they throw him That's words. That's cool. Oh, yeah. yeah, the way that that guy's mind worked kind of reminds me of this because like you have to have the same type of. Uh, I I guess like you have to find a flow too. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I when I write, and that's something that psychedelics can help with is getting in that flow because you kind of get out of your own head. But yeah, because uh, I, I was gonna mention that with because uh, you see some of these some of these rappers, right? They lean on uh, <clears throat> anytime they go in the studio, they get on some sort of drugs because it feel I feel like they they feel more creative. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Than going in there sober. Uh, do you think? Uh, I mean, do you think that's like almost like a double-edged sword? Like you want to be creative, you want to do something new, something innovative, or something just out of the box. But in order to get to that out of the box, you have to. Yeah, so I think at some point, if you're doing too much, too many drugs, you're gonna just start like, no one's gonna be understanding what you're saying anymore because you're gonna get into like some weird territory. Mm-hmm. You know? um, yeah, and actually, I don't, especially as I get older, I don't do, I don't do weed or psychedelics that often, but. Um, cause I think some people definitely do over rely on it and something that was, it was a double-edged sword cause lots of that community I had down in Logan, Utah, we had this, you know, this pretty cool poetry community, but to be honest, lots of those friends I had from that time period, like were pretty self-destructive and kind of like overdid it. Yeah. And either they're not around anymore because they've died or, or they're, you know, having rough lives yeah, at this yeah. time. You know, 10 years later, when you're like 21, you can, you can, you know, be more reckless and go kind of crazy. By the time you start getting 30, you start, you know, you can age fast if you're still living that recklessly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I also had a like question for you, like on the, on the poetry side, because you said there's bad poetry and then there's good poetry. What makes a, a good, you know, poem for you? I think that's a good question. Um, like I said, I think lots of poetry is just like, boring i think lots of poets are just trying too much to sound smart or i don't know i but i like poetry that's really grounded and it's just more like a conversation and someone usually I like poetry that's sort of narrative so it's sort of telling a story because mm-hmm. um, stuff can get too abstract and that's not really interesting so usually something is is a narrative and it's personal and it has um you know if there's stakes in what's being said um I think that's what's important for me reading poetry. So I don't blame lots of people for not being in, into poetry because lots of poetry is not good. And there's a reason why that I think a lot of that is, is because poetry has become really uh, secluded in the domain of academia mm-hmm. and academia can get, you know, as someone who comes from academia uh, can get sort of stuffy and elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are good academics who write good poetry, of course, but um, I like that kind of poetry, poetry that's sort of like, I don't know, guerrilla poetry and, and zines. Like I had this one friend in Logan. Uh, he was a great poet and he was self-destructive as, as hell. Uh, can I swear on here? By yeah, the way? go ahead. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Uh, but like he, he made these zines, for example, he made like a limited run of like maybe five of them. I don't have a copy, but cause they were hard to get, but he, he decorated the zines with his own blood. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jesus. He would like write poems with his blood and just weird stuff like that. But, just like really, he would write a lot about mental health issues and stuff. And um, do you think that helped him, oh, like yeah. expressing what he felt? Or uh, I mean, because if he's writing with his blood, don't you think that's a little bit more intense? Like it's super intense, and his poetry was really intense. Um, I have no idea where he is these days. I think, I think in Salt Lake City, but um, it was a good outlet for him. I'm sure it was a good outlet for me and my friends, but. Um, Sometimes it can become self-indulgent in sort of that self-destructiveness for sure. I was going to tell you, uh, you kind of started talking about politics, not to get into it, but like, how do you, so you, if you have a strong point, um, I don't want you to like compare to my aunt Susan that blabbers about politics on Facebook, but mm-hmm. what do you, what do you do when you do clash with someone that has the opposite opinion views? Cause mm-hmm. I'll tell you what kind of I do. Um, I'll always have my opinions and I feel like everybody has their own opinions, but like if someone comes in and says the complete opposite of what I just said, it's kind of like a brush it off. I mean, you know, they don't feed me. I don't feed them type mm-hmm. of deal. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that don't take it like that because it means a lot more to them than some people may, you know. But kind of how do you, like, handle something like that, which I feel like would be it's pretty important since you study that. 
Yeah, there's a lot of there's really high stakes in discussing lots of issues, and lots of people base their whole personalities around their political views. So they're not going to give ground easily in an argument. So I think it's kind of important just to see if the argument has any chance of being productive. Some people don't want to have arguments for the sake of being productive. Uh, they just want to argue. Um, yeah, they just want to argue, or they just want to, um, you know, um, repeat their own points and just, you know, stick within their own ideology. So it's a, I think there's some people I wouldn't argue with. Like, it depends on it depends on if they're arguing in good faith or not. Yeah. Yeah, because some people are going to believe what I – always, I always tell people this, uh, just to keep it, keep it simple. I like LeBron James. Some people say Kobe's better. Nothing you say to me is going to convince me mm-hmm. that Kobe is better. You know what I mean? Like, and that's how some people take these arguments, you know, but I'm willing to listen. Yeah. That's, that's where I feel like a lot of people don't, uh, don't do that. They don't take to listen to your side. It's what, whatever they say. Yeah. And those are the people I don't like to argue with because no matter what you say, it's, it's going to turn into an argument, <clears throat> could turn physical, you know, and then, you know, who knows from there. Uh, but since we, we got into your, um, you know, what you do, uh, is this something you wanted to do in high school? No, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that um, I hated I hated working for someone else. Mm-hmm. I hated, like, I'm the worst customer service person, for example. Like, I just never was good, like, putting on that, like, happy face, like, and just, like, working for someone else, working for a wage. I always hated that. So um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, uh, but I decided as time went on, like I've worked, I've worked at like for a year after college, for example, I sell, I sold Medicare part D insurance plans. And I, so I've worked like shitty jobs like that and it was just really not fulfilling. So it was really after, after I graduated my, with my undergrad degree that, um, I got interested in more interested in political issues and, uh, you know, I was already kind of studying politics and inequality and capitalism on my own time. So I figured I might as well uh, try to make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say it didn't happen until until I got to graduate school later on. And what was your undergrad again? My undergraduate was at Utah State. And actually, I studied English. I studied writing. So yeah. so you got a, a bachelor in, in writing? Yeah. And then you got your doctorates, right? Yeah, first I got my master's degree in political science. Oh, political science. Uh, that was in New Mexico, and then I got my PhD in sociology. Congrats, by the way. That's a that's a... <laughs> we messed up your intro. <laughs> no, that's Still. a that, it's doctor doctor draw. Yeah. Do, do you ever correct people and they're like, oh, it's a uh, doctor? Uh... Uh, no, because and it's also relatively recent that I actually finished the PhD. So even my students, like, I don't know, I feel like I don't want to be like an asshole, be like refer to me as doctor you know? <laughs> i would if if i put Dude, in would, all that yeah, work i would all these years <laughs> i would be like uh what, what, did you say mister yeah i'd change my profile on facebook for sure that'd be my first go-to no but that's a that's a huge accomplishment not a lot of people can uh i mean some people barely even get their bachelor's degree or you know uh, associates or anything like that but being able to get a uh, a doctorate degree and i think i was talking to you about the doctor because we some people confuse <laughs> Uh, like they think doctor means medical. Yeah. But it yeah. doesn't mean medical, right? Yeah, it, right. It, oh, it, yeah. We were talking about it. It was like last week. I was asking you about like. Um, it was this podcast. We were talking about. I was like, uh, you, you got your, your doctorates. And he's like, he's a doctor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where it kind of went on there. Yeah. I remember now. Yeah. And there's even like. What's a, what's above? Uh, You can get do a, something called a post doctorate where like you go and do even more research. But lots of people don't do that. They just try to get a job straight out of their doctorate. Like, I've had enough school. I don't want to do a postdoc. Um, but sometimes it can help you get a better job. But, yeah, it's it's not like a medical doctor. So um, there's I think there's confusion in the general public around that, especially people who haven't gone to college. Mm-hmm. You know, and PhD actually stands for Doctor of Philosophy, even though it can be in any, any, uh, any, uh, any field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as you know, I, I was going to ask something. Um, do you think that the, and we talked about it too. Do you think like the doctor name and like medical field tainted the whole um, kind of label or not label or like. Um, Cause you say doctor and yeah, you, we all you automatically think 
Yeah, I think. Uh, I don't know why they call them the same word. I would be good if they had a different word for. It. I wouldn't mind if there was a different word for it. But you know, like if you're in a university setting, you always call your professor Doctor Smith or whatever the hell their name is. You know, and um, but outside of the university setting, definitely when you hear the word doctor, you think of a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, so I also got told that you did a lot of like charitable work over in Africa. Mm-hmm. Like, did you go over? Yeah, that's where I did my my research and my field work for my PhD and my master's degree was uh, in Sierra Leone in West Africa. How long were you out there for? Uh, I've gone there numerous times. The longest single stint I had there was about nine months. Um, but I try to go every, well, I haven't gone since, well, actually I went once since COVID started, mm-hmm. but it's harder to go now with COVID. I try to go every couple of years or so. So your your first time going, and and you had to do this for school, yeah. Okay, your first time going. Do you all oh, hold up, before I go there? Did you choose where you're gonna go? Well, let me let me back up. How I first got interested in Africa was when I graduated with my bachelor's degree. Um, I just I didn't have any job prospects and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I ended up joining the U.S. Peace Corps, mm-hmm. and they sent me to Sierra Leone, West Africa. And didn't really have say where I went at that point. Um, but I didn't end up, usually the Peace Corps lasts two years, but I, I didn't really jive with the Peace Corps. So mm-hmm. I only stayed a few months and then I left the program. Uh, so, But that's how I was first int- uh, introduced to Sierra Leone. Then after that, I started going back on my own because um, I made good friends there and I was interested in the place. Um, but my first introduction was with the U.S. Peace Corps. And what made you, besides the friends, was there something else that, drew you to that to um, that place yeah the poverty there is just like almost incomprehensible um for people who've never been to you know it's one of the poorest countries in the world it's in like the bottom 10 of the poorest countries in the world they have like a uh, super high infant mortality rate maternal mortality rate it's just a whole nother level of poverty even compared to like middle income countries like mexico or you know, it's, it's just a whole nother level. So, uh, I just became, that's when I, when I went there, that's when I started becoming really interested in questions of like social justice and inequality. Cause I was there and I was thinking like, what kind of world do we live in where, where, you know, the world is so wealthy, but there's these people living in such poverty. And I actually, uh, ended up quasi adopting this, this young girl who, who was there. Um, and that like really strengthened my connection to the country because I was always really interested in her well-being. Like I didn't adopt her and like take her into my house because she was a Sierra Leonean, but I started like sponsoring her. So mm-hmm. like I started paying for her to go to school and, and paying for her food because she was an orphan. And unfortunately, that's really common there because people die so often there. And there's lots of also lots of children that are unwanted there because there's not much in the way of birth control or family planning. So you have a lot of orphans there or unwanted, you know, street kids. And this girl, what will happen there is kids that are unwanted will sometimes be taken in by wealthier families or better off to do families and be treated essentially as slaves or as servants. Um, So I knew this family and I noticed there was this one little girl who was being treated different than the other kids in the family. Like they were, and the mother of the family, uh, it's hard to say because I actually love this woman and she's been through a lot of difficult things in her life too. So, but also she was, she was abusing this girl. Like she was beating her like every night and I was staying with this family and I just felt really bad for this little girl. And we had this uh, really strong connection. I didn't know what it was, but uh, I think maybe many people hadn't been nice to her in her life and I was sort of nice to her and she, um, she would like when she was between doing tasks like going to the well and getting water or cleaning things she would she would run up to me and start telling me things about uh, her mother who had died and things like that just these really sweet things this little girl was sharing with me so i became really invested in this little girl's well-being and um uh that's how i started getting really personally invested in the country is through her and uh i'm still in contact with her she's getting older now she's about 17 now so oh, wow. she's getting ready to go to college now but I think when I met her, she was um, maybe nine or ten. Oh dang! So yeah. you you've basically grown up with her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
and I, I helped her try to get into a better living situation. So she left that house where she was being abused and now she lives with her grandmother and um, she's doing better now. If if you were to step in, like say you knew that what was going on, would that, would do you think they would have kicked you out or like? It's uh, a good question. Because um, that would be hard to see or hear. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if I saw, for example, here, if I saw like an adult beating their kid, I would say something, yeah. you know? Uh, so I don't know if like you kind of had to bite your tongue just for the moment. Cause I, actually, before you, what what would happen to, let's say, uh, this girl, if she wasn't in that home, would she be worse off? If she wasn't in the home as like the servant, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as fucked up as that sounds yeah. like it is she, messed up, but like reality, you said it's like, it's, it's bad out there. Like how she, bad she would probably it be? be a street kid or have to turn to prostitution or something like that. Um, and that's really common there. Um, and it, there was, at that point I was still really learning about the culture. So there was, I didn't want to be culturally insensitive as well because I don't know, but I hated seeing, seeing her and I still hate it when I go there. It's more common to see kids getting beat. Um, but she, she wasn't just getting like spanked or like, it's common there for kids if they're bad to get hit with a switch, for example. Hey. But it went to another level than that. It was like serious abuse. Um, and that was really hard for me. And so I would I did speak to the mother, you know, like or say like, Can you not do that or don't do that? And it was mostly brushed off as like, Oh, she needs it. Like she needs it because she's bad or or things like that. Um so part of it is cultural, but also uh you do, I don't know, there's things that are cultural, like, that I don't agree with still, but, like, you know, hitting a kid with a switch a few times, I don't like that, but that's something culturally that I'm probably not going to, like, get too involved with, but you can take it to another level, where even in their culture, I think even the average person in their culture would have been, like, that woman shouldn't be abusing that girl that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of tension when I help the girl leave that house because the mother of that household, um, her and I were, were really close in a lot of ways. And I actually lived at that house. So she did a lot for me, but, um, it did create tension between us because I helped the girl leave and the mother became very angry. Um, so it kind of put a wedge in our relationship, but I was more interested in helping the girl. And it's, it's amazing what you did for her, but it sucks that there's, you can't help everybody. You know what I mean? You said there's kids out there like all over the place. And for some reason you were drawn with her, you know what I mean? Like to help her. But I'm sure if you could have helped hundreds of kids, you would have helped a hundred of kids. What what do you think are some of the changes that we need to do in order for them to like get out of this situation? Cause it's, we're what in 2022. And like you said, they're still living like that. Yeah. That's a really good question. Something I asked myself a lot. And that's why I decided to go into uh, researching um, politics and economics is because I was also interested in more uh, systemic solutions. Um, it's good to help people on an individual level, but like you said, it bugged me that I couldn't help everyone. And I'm probably guilty of sometimes of, um, not that I'm like a saint, but it's I'm guilty sometimes of like trying to help too many people and then you start being able to like not take care of yourself. You know, I probably... Uh, I'm guilty of that, but um, this is where we start getting into, you know, political and economic territory. And uh, there's this quote I like that says, uh, I think it's from, I think it was from, um, I want to say a priest in El Salvador. um, But he said something along the lines of, when people see me feeding the hungry, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor are hungry, they call me a communist. Um. So, you know, it starts to become a question of of questioning our political and economic system, especially in a country like Sierra Leone, which has a lot of natural resources and is actually a wealthy country in terms of the resources they have. But they're heavily exploited by uh, by the West and by foreign corporations, especially, and by uh, the politicians there. So... Um, there needs to be major changes in in that country and in that economy and throughout the world to to address uh, inequality. I think. So, um, just a couple episodes back, we had Timmy 
um, and he, his family is also from a country from Africa. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which one, but I remember him slightly talking about how how the government kind of like um, I guess they say like if people like here we everybody has the right like they can open a business they can start whatever they want without anybody saying anything, but over there like you said that uh, if you try to grow a business and it's pers- like it's prospering the government basically blows out your your candle and doesn't let you succeed. Um, yeah, yeah something like that. Like, yeah, you can't be competing with, with these big, yeah. uh, like the bigger corporations that are out there. Like as soon as you start competing with them, then they're like, you can't do that. Cause what he was telling us that his dad went to jail several times just to get him to stop. Cause he had an, uh, an export import business. And, and then he also had another business so with he, the oil, he got right? In jail- because I guess he had the only um, cooking oil, I guess, that they were making a plant in Africa. Do you know what country it was? I don't remember. We'll it, have to he go back. said it, but it's like a really weird name. Uh, yeah. like, I can't remember. And so it said that that the, since it was only one, they would work. And then basically they had to shut down because the oil was cheaper to get from the plant because it was made in the country than the, what the government was selling them. Because the government was importing it. So they basically shut him down and uh, because the government was losing money, everybody's buying from him. So so do you think, like, I'm glad he brought that up. Do you think, because I like to play both sides. Yes, they, like we, uh, the corporations need to change their way. But do you also think it's their government that's not letting them uh, make that change? I think um, their government is, one way to put it, is um, this is drawing on a, a a theorist maybe you guys have heard of or an activist named Franz Fanon. Have you ever heard of Franz Fanon? Mm-hmm. He was a famous anti-colonial activist in Algeria in the 1950s and 60s at a time when lots of Africa was uh, fighting for independence from European colonization. But he had this idea that the ruling classes in lots of African countries, for example, or the politicians, the political class. He called them the comprador class. And what makes this class, uh, like what defines them is they tend to be in cahoots, especially with wealthy foreign powers. So uh, that's the case in Sierra Leone and lots of other African countries where, um, you know, it's like, we'll give you access to our gold or our diamonds and then you give me kickbacks, right? Mm -hmm. So you can come and, you know, rape the land and, and take most of our natural resources and it's not it's not helping the people in our country but as long as i'm you know i have a share of the profits then then that's cool so lots of times the the political class in those countries is in cahoots especially with um with big business and corporations to you know the, to help plunder the countries basically yeah cuz i remember watching uh it was some, like some documentaries and stuff on how like over here you see your uh you see celebrities with like diamond watches and, and things like that but people never see how that was you know like what went through in order for you to get this this diamond yeah. uh it was it was just, and they don't get paid like nothing basically uh it do you think a lot of the things that cuz it's also like when they're making cell phones, right? Yeah. Like some of the parts in the cell phone, they actually get it from, uh, they have to like mine it and stuff mm-hmm. like that in order to make, I, I forgot where I heard it, in order to make like one iPhone. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot of resources that, you know, they have to get and who knows how they get it. You know, uh, of course, there's some, let's say like contractor out there, he, he makes these kids go get it, mm-hmm. you know, go get it and doesn't pay them anything. Yeah. Uh, so, this, like, almost like the some of the materials that we like here mm-hmm. is is not helping them, right? Yeah, that's a good point about uh, there's the concept of blood diamonds. Yeah. And this was, Sierra Leone was mostly internationally known for this because they had a civil war from 1991 to 2002. Mm-hmm. And lots of the civil war was about control of the diamond mines because they have lots of diamonds there. So lots of these diamonds that were coming to the the developed world were coming from conflict zones where slave labor was being used and child labor and uh, things like that. So in that movie, Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio, I don't know if you've seen that yeah, movie. That's a good movie. I don't think I've, I've seen, seen that one. one. Uh, it's set in Sierra Leone. 
Um, that's how lots of Americans know of Sierra Leone is through that movie. And Big Sean, Big Sean does a song was it about was it pretty it. accurate? Or um, did they over? Just so I can get I, I, I feel, now, I want to go see it. Like maybe, like the maybe it is a little overacted. Yeah, or, it's a Hollywood. It's, or, yeah, or is there something Hollywood. something you could recommend, like not just myself but the listeners to go go and check out? Or is there a book that uh, so you can kind of get an idea? Because we can sit here and talk about it all day. Mm. But it's something different about hearing it or seeing it, you yeah. know, because uh, uh, like the whole poverty thing, it's worse in Africa. I've seen poverty in Mexico. Yeah. But there's, it, there's also poverty here in the country. Yeah. But it's know? yeah, it's all different, you yeah, know, basing different. on your situation. People think, oh, they're poor. They think poor. Someone sitting on a corner asking for money. No, it's like poor, poor. Like they're eating basically garbage sometimes yeah. just you, to feed themselves. Do you think... Um, Kind of just before to leave the top, not leave the top, but um, the movie The Blood Diamonds, as long as you know it's Hollywood, I feel it's pretty good. Yeah, it'd probably be a good introduction for yeah. people just to get an idea of um, the maybe the basics of what was going on in the Civil War. It was a really yeah. brutal war. And sometimes Sierra Leoneans don't like to talk about it that much because sometimes that's all foreigners know about them. And for example, the war became internationally known for how brutal the rebels in the war war were because – they had this method of terrorizing the populace by cutting off limbs. Uh, and that's depicted in the movie. Um, but at the same time, that's not all that Sierra, Leone- Sierra Leoneans want to be known for. Mm. you know. But it definitely still does have ramifications in the country. You have lots of kids who were child soldiers and are now adults and people who went through a lot of trauma at that time. And um, That's part of why I was trying to like not be too judgmental of the woman that was abusing the girl. Because I know she's been through a lot, but at the same time, like, it doesn't excuse her behavior. But there's a, definitely a lot of trauma, especially in all post-conflict societies, that um, that's hard to address, especially in poor countries like that. Mm-hmm. But Blood Diamond, I'm not going to say, like, don't watch it, but because, you know, it's like, it's good that there's any movies taking place in Africa, really, because lots of people don't know about the situation in Africa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you heard about the, you know, the the rapper, singer, Akon, mm-hmm. how he's trying to put all of these, uh, what was, I think it was like solar panels or something like he's putting lights in all these uh, countries that don't have light and things like mm-hmm. that. Is, is he African? He is, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's from, he from Senegal, I think. Okay. Senegal. Um, and he's buying his own little towns over there. Uh, do you think more people need to be... Like that, you know what I mean? Like try to try to help these people get out uh, out of that situation instead of just because right now, say someone's listening to it, they're gonna be like, "Oh, that sucks." Go on with their day, yeah. you know. But what what are some of the things that even we can do to help, you know, uh, improve their situation? Yeah. It's a good question. I think I've thought about that a lot myself. How can I help? Um, yeah, because sometimes we don't have the means, like we have to pay like uh, flights to get over there yeah. and then not just getting over there. Like we don't know what we're doing. Like say I would go out of yeah. nowhere. Right. Which it's something I, I have wanted to visit uh, Africa just because I love all people, you know, and I love all cultures. I like to see everything. Uh, but some people don't have the means to get over there, yeah. but they want to help, or, but they just don't yeah. know what to do to help. Kind of. I want to pile on that question or do you think people that are helping, do you think the help gets washed out and it doesn't get to them? Yeah, so that's a good point too is like how much help is possible within our current system and how much good – like let's talk about charities or um, a term we use for – basically another word for charities that's used a lot is NGOs, non-governmental organizations. Um, so Africa is just like overflowing with NGOs and charities, things like Oxfam and BRAC and – uh, basically charities that are supposed to be addressing these issues. Um, and some of them do do really good work. Like you could, you could uh, donate to, to some of these charities, try to find ones that are reputable and do your research and see which ones are actually delivering their resources to the people that need it rather than spending all of the money on like personnel and on themselves. Cause that does happen with charities and that's a big problem. Um, but for me, also, there's a more fundamental question of people should be able to live their lives without having to depend on charity. 
And that question gets to more how we need to change the structure of our political and economic systems. Um, so I think while charity is good and it can do a lot of good and, you know, I engage in it, but, um, sometimes I think it's a way to almost neutralize, uh, more, I guess you could say radical solutions to these problems. Like, um, I don't know, like, like I said, that quote before, um, if I'm, if I, if I give charity, then people think I'm a great person. But when I start asking why is charity necessary in the first place, people start getting defensive Mm -hmm. and start saying, well, now you're talking about, now you're being too radical. Um, but yeah, I think if people, if people want to get involved, sometimes that is their only option. Another option is to, um, you know, advocate for causes they believe in and, and vote for people who are interested in those same causes. So, Another thing I'm involved with in Sierra Leone is, um, and one thing I study is actually political activists in the country and how they're trying to change things and make things better. And uh, I try to support them in in ways as much as I can as well, because I think real change is going to come from changing the system because there's so much charity flowing into those countries. And oftentimes it's, it's kind of putting a bandaid over, uh, over, you know, an open wound and it's not really addressing the root causes of the poverty. Yeah. That's what I was about to say. Uh, I was about to ask you, do you think the charities are more like a a bandaid, like like an open wound just because uh, for those people listening, like sometimes when you donate to something and you don't even know what that charity is, a lot of the times that money, like if you actually start digging into it, some of these charities probably like around 10, percent goes to the actual yeah. cause not even to they have to pay for uh payroll whatever uh they have to pay for like uh advertising yeah. like also all these other fees besides what the actual money should have been for yeah. uh so w- what are some good ones that you know of um i think oxfam it's one of the biggest ngos in the world but they do pretty decent work um I actually know some Sierra Leoneans who work for an NGO called World Vision, which seems decent. And their their model is sort of, you know, the, maybe you've seen these commercials where it's like sponsor a child in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, that's their model. So they're largely funded through individuals sponsoring children. But one thing they do that's good is they don't say you sponsor a child through World Vision. Um, if they were to just give that money to one child, that child might be... Um, uh, what's the word? Resented by the wider community. Mm. Why is why is someone only paying for this child? So what do they actually do if you sponsor a child? Is they'll actually spread out your money to try to help the whole community instead um, of just one. Yeah, but they they like to advertise it as sponsoring one child because it gets more people more emotionally connected to yeah, to sponsoring. Almost feels like you're, you're connected smart. with that one kid. Because yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. When, when you do something like that, they also send you, like, stuff from that kid? Yeah. Like, say he writes you a letter, he'll send you a letter or a picture or w- whatever they're doing at that yeah. moment? Yeah. Yeah. So, that kid is being helped by your money, like, but also they spread it out, like, to his whole school or something, you know, or his neighborhood. Or I don't know too much about World Vision, but I know some individuals who work for World Vision, and they seem decent, at least. Um, and there's probably lots of decent charities, but... Um, you ought to think that for NGOs and nonprofits, they also do have an interest in, in, in just promoting themselves. So, um, I would just say, if you want to donate to a to a charity, just do your research on which ones you're 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 gonna give your money to. So, so this might be like um, borderline, but do you think there's the opposite? There's uh, people down there that do take advantage of the donations. Um, and I kind of want to give you an example. Um, I think this is this kind of, if you're Hispanic, you might like understand, uh, like you said, poverty is all around the world. And like, at least I have family that's not doing very well in Mexico. And so like my mom and dad sent some money mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, well, a hundred bucks for us is, yeah, maybe, I don't know, half day, day of work. But for them, it changes their life. Yeah. But then it gets to a point that they're reliant on the sense of the, on your money and they become instead of like oh it's a benefit to them they're becoming reliant and you're my dad always said like um 
you you help them to a point, but then from there you kind of like uh, you're Almost like you're they not, get comfortable. Yeah, you're not doing any any help because they're not doing anything. They're being reliant or like, oh, well, he'll just send me money next month or blah blah blah. Do you think people is there has to be something like like you said, not all organizations are good. Do you think it kind of some of those go on the wrong path as well? I think there's lots of politicians, especially who get who get wealthy off of charity and NGO work. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of um, individuals sending money um, through, uh, what do they call it? When uh, GoFundMe. When, when, when individuals send money, there's a term for it. Oh, um, so it's an R. I can't think of the term right now, but. Um, but yeah, and those companies that, that manage those transactions make a lot of money like Western union. Mm -hmm. Um, and they take a shitload of like in their fees and, and they always have really crappy exchange rates. Um, I don't think it's so much a problem of people becoming too reliant on like their, and it could be in on individual cases, people taking advantage of their, uh, of their, uh, relatives in like United States sending money back. But mm-hmm. I think, well, talking about it in terms of structural or more systemic issues, I think it is an issue that, that somewhere like Sierra Leone, for example, needs to rely on charities in the first place, you know, because it is, it is a bandaid and it's not dealing with the root of the cause of the issue. Okay. Um, See, I should have just structured my, my question a little different, but yeah, I guess you kind of answered that. Yeah. So I'm not saying like in the short term, maybe it is good to give to charities, but at the same time, we also need to be looking at the broader and the, the, the broader deeper issues of yeah. why Sierra Leone is poor and so poor in the first place. And that has, yeah, gets into questions of things like colonization and exploitation and racism. And uh, yeah, but I've also, sp- I've also done research in Mexico and spent a lot of time in Mexico. So those are two interesting cases to kind of compare as well. Mexico yeah, and West two, Africa. Two different ones, yeah, I guess. So to me, because being in this field is probably like a lot of frustration, a lot of pain, a lot of sadness. What keeps you going? Like, because I'm sure you, you've had arguments with people like you want you want to make these changes, but they don't happen overnight or they just don't happen. Like what keeps you going? Like doing in this field, trying to help Sierra Leone and other countries like it. Well, that's a really good question. It's a personal question that I have to deal with at times because lots of times it does feel like no progress is being made or what's the point. Um, I think you just got to try to stay optimistic, as optimistic as you can. And it does help if you can engage in helping people on a personal level. So I do have lots of friends. I try to help when I can and, and that makes me feel good. But like I said, I wish I could help everyone, but I can't. Um, but do you think if you, for example, if you change that little girl's life, do you think changing her life might benefit everybody at the end? Because like you said, you can't help everybody, but if you help the right person and they do change down the road, do you think that'd be a, a good route to the solution? Yeah. I think helping one person can have a big sort of uh chain a ripple effect for yeah. sure. And she wants to become a nurse. And so, hoping to help her go to college there to become a nurse and then she'll be helping people and that would be great um so i'm not saying it's not important to help individuals or to donate to a charity but especially that can help you on a personal level to not get too depressed i think but it it can be really depressing for sure and uh it gets draining sometimes for sure what would you say because i know you met you touched on it a little bit were some big difference in it differences in mexico and in africa because you said you were doing some work in mexico too Mm -hmm. i've mostly done well i've spent quite a bit of time in uh ciudad juarez because i lived on the border in las cruces new mexico isn't that the the it was like the capital of the drug and yeah it used to be really bad for drugs and for it used to be the murder capital of the world i don't think it is now but it used to be um and i was friends with activists down there uh and I still have really some really good friends there. Shout out to my good friend Valeria. But um, so I was just saying that to say that Mexico is such a big country that, as you as you both know, 
uh, it really depends on where you're at in Mexico as well, like what the the poverty is like. Because I've also spent a lot of time in Mexico City, and you see incredible wealth in Mexico City as well. Uh, so it's all depending on you know the, the the context in Mexico City is really different than the context in Juarez, and uh, I haven't spent a lot of time in really rural Mexico, and that context is also totally different. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's like, interesting. Like you said, it is base by base. Yeah, because um, uh, some people think they know what poor is, but they really have no idea like what poor can be. Uh, there's people, or I, I've seen like some documentaries and stuff. Because I'm huge into documentaries because I actually want to learn what's going on, not watch a movie. That's why I asked if there's anything else besides Blood mm-hmm. Diamond to watch yeah. that I could check out. Just because I would rather watch the documentary. And get actual more concrete facts mm-hmm. than a movie, and you're just pretty much guessing, and you're like, "That looks a little intense." I don't know if that yeah. was like S- Sierra Leone is very popular because they even said Big Sean has a song named Sierra Leone, yeah. and he talks about what's going on, and so I think that's very popular. Yeah, so um, like place. those people listening, like, uh, I mean, o- always try to help, whether it be like Sierra Leone or some sort mm-hmm. of community that you know you resonate with, uh, or because uh, I know. Um, some people like to help out where they're from, like in Mexico, you know, and like things like that. Mm-hmm. We should all be trying to help somebody. Uh, I wish I'm in the same boat as you. I wish we could help everybody. I I wouldn't want to see kids getting beaten or kids getting like living on the street like that. That would it, it would uh, to me it would break my heart. Yeah. And do you think? Because I know you touched on it earlier. I don't know if you follow Murph's life on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So what they do is like they have like a GoFundMe. This guy and his and his girlfriend or wife, one of the two, they travel the world and they help certain families. Like, oh, this is so and so. He 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 works this cart right here. And, oh, and, I've seen and him does on that. TikTok. I don't... Do do you think that's actually? And they'll completely change their life. They'll make him a new cart, getting get get him a home, and and, and you know things like that. Do you think that's actually bad? Because uh, you said earlier when they only focus on one kid, it kind of isolates that kid. And they're like, why just that kid, you know? So now you're helping cause it, he does it all over the world, not just mm. uh, um, South America. He goes, you know, to over to Africa and Europe. Do you think that's actually bad? Like completely changing one family's life and then just leaving? Uh, I guess it depends on the attitude of the surrounding culture and their, and their peers. It can be a problem in Africa specifically in like a village situation where you give one kid, one kid is suddenly getting the special treatment and everyone else might start to resent him. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so probably just, it just depends on the context. I think it's great to be able to help an individual and that I don't know the Instagram account you're talking about, but it's probably also good to raise awareness, you know, via Instagram for other people around the world to be seeing the, you know, the struggles that workers go through. Um, that's something that actually my research is specifically focused on workers in the informal economy, which is like people that are like, you know, petty traders on the street. Because in, 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 in Sierra Leone, that's how like 90% of people survive is by, well, maybe that's exact, maybe like 70% of people survive often via like selling goods on the street. And mm-hmm. also in Mexico, you see a lot of people surviving in the informal economy. Um have you ever thought about documenting some of the stuff you see over there? Like taking your phone and because, like I said, it, it's it's different when you – people listening to the podcast, they're going to kind of like picture it, right? Yeah. But it's different actually seeing, uh, you know, visualizing it, seeing it because I feel like it has more of a an effect, yeah. more of a – If you get to know the people. Yeah, and yeah. you actually see – you're like, dang, that kid is living like that. Yeah, I've thought about – I would love to make a documentary. I, I – I used to also make little films when I was younger as well. And I, I've studied documentary making a little. Um, when I was doing my research there, I mostly conducted interviews. And I have to follow like uh, research protocol of like keeping people's information confidential and that kind of stuff. So uh, I'd have to do it sort of in a different, um, a different role than when I go there as a sociologist. Because as a sociologist conducting stuff, with what they call research on human subjects, you usually have to follow guidelines to make sure that you're not sharing people's confidential information. And cause you don't want someone like saying something politically and then, and then you write about it and they get punished by the government or something. So, um, so you would necessarily like almost have to go back under something different. Like say you're trying to document it. 
like as a as a film or you know a yeah. documentary so you would have to get a pass for that in yeah. order to be able to There'd probably be some yeah i'd have to do it in a different way i'd probably try to if i were to do that i'd probably try to have to get permission from the government in some way and then uh it'd be important that i had some sort of probably like release form for people that people signed agreeing to be in the documentary or something like that when i do when i do research there i i also like have to I give people an informed consent form that they sign and I explain to them what the research is used for and then I'll keep it confidential. So I think that's just part of being ethical um, because there is a lot of what people call poverty porn where sometimes like people from wealthier countries like to just gawk at the poverty. Like they almost romanticize it like, oh, whoa, look at that, like make freaks out of really poor people, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it also is important to have, you know, well thought out and and ethically made documentaries that can shed light on it as well. So um, I would love to do that one day if I, you know, there's also the question of like funding and buying the correct equipment. And like, I'm by no means a filmmaker, so I would have to learn the ins and outs of of that. But I think that would be an important way for people to get more connected to these issues is is having documentaries like that. I, I would love to do a documentary special on, especially on informal workers, because that's not a place that gets lots of emphasis that, there's people working their asses off, you know, as small scale entrepreneurs and as like street traders that are struggling every day to make ends meet, and they don't get a lot of attention. I don't think. Dang. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, ho- hopefully you uh, are able to get that pass or some something like that because that that would be something good to document and just even if it doesn't ever come out, just always have that footage. Yeah. That way you can it's, actually show people. It's different if someone records it like personally and then a big company like vice goes and has to be polit- politically correct and yeah like be awesome or to me always to uh that's why i like doing these uh these podcasts because people i get the messages all the time they get inspired either to start their own business or to motivate them to do something is to me it's different when it comes to somebody uh not a celebrity because say like the weekend i really like the weekend but his story really doesn't like motivate me because you're you're just like oh he's like some big star you know it doesn't really hit like i connect in that way but when 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 you do something with like local people or somebody you may heard of or uh you know someone that you feel like is almost like a normal person you know because you have your celebrities up here which you're like i'm never gonna get there and then you have your like normal people you're like i can relate to that you know or if he's doing it i can do it yeah um you know so that that's why i feel like you documenting it somehow even if it's with your phone like even get one of those camcorders that you really don't have to all you have to know is how to hit record and uh hit stop you know uh something like that so i mean i hope for the best for you uh i got to know you and you're a very interesting person you know what i mean like uh and and just us talking about the whole sierra leone thing motivates me to look more into it you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's cool. I, I, I hate to see kids like that. Yeah. Uh, just because, uh, for example, I always tell people like we had a, a, a an episode on like sex offenders and pedophiles. Uh, I was like, just look at your, like for me, my nephew, like he's about to turn two. I would lose my shit if I found out somebody was touching him or like beating, you know what I mean? Like things yeah. like that. And so I hate seeing like other kids like that being stuck in that situation where almost I mean, that's, to them, it's normal. Mm-hmm. It, to, to them, they don't see, like, uh, you know, the America, how U.S. is, you know. Uh, th- all they know is their surrounding area, you know. So, to me, it sucks me thinking that that's all they see or that's all they know. They don't know that, you know, they can possibly get out, you know. And some of them do, you know, like with people like yourself who, who go down and help them. Or it's not down, is it? No. Uh, but go over and help mm-hmm. them. You know, you you help this little girl. Uh, grew up with her. She's about to. She's gonna go into nursing school. You said. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, and that's that's amazing. You know what I mean? Not a lot of people can say that. Hey, I helped. You know, her. She was. Uh, she was pretty poor, right? Yeah. And then she went into this home. Like, who who do you know that has done that? Yeah, exactly. And there's not enough people who do that. You know, who who try to help. Uh, and I'm, I'm huge in helping people too, as well. I, no matter what it is, I love helping people. Like 
you ask me questions, I try to help you however I can. You know, I can't do it for you. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's up to you. But, you know, I appreciate you coming and, and chatting with us. Sure. Uh, hopefully, you know, I mean, I follow you on Instagram now. You know, I, Maybe you can post some pictures when you're like, when's your next trip out there? That's a good question. Um, I hope to go as soon as possible, but it'll probably be maybe this summer I'll try to go back. We'll see. Yeah, because I would love to see like almost like what you have to go through, you know, even if it's not like taking pictures, maybe taking of like a, like more of a landscape, you know, mm-hmm. like what you're seeing, you know, because yeah. like I said, it's all about that, that's the great, great thing about social media right now is mm-hmm. that you can actually see it and visualize it before it's a. Uh, it was really hard. Like if you didn't have the internet, like you could see like a, maybe in a magazine or something like that. Now it's a lot easier to get information out to other people. It's also crazy. Speaking of social media, just it's an interesting point that like most people there I know, or lots of them have access to WhatsApp too. So that's changed. Like now I can, when I first went in 2013, it wasn't like that. Now I can keep in contact with my friends there pretty easily via WhatsApp, which Mm -hmm. is like a huge thing to be able to get in direct contact with people from around the world that we didn't have before. Yeah, and see now it's it's a lot. We can share information a lot quicker. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, I look forward to seeing, and hope hopefully, you know, we can figure out a way to change everyone's situation because they shouldn't be living like that. Cool. Anyways, thank you for coming on. Thanks Appreciate it. You know, and thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you guys. Peace. Say bye. Bye. <laughs>